It's the summer of 1848. We're in New England. Phineas P. Gage, 25 years old, construction foreman, is about to go from rags to riches. A century and a half later, his downfall will still be quite meaningful. He works for the Rutland and Burlington Railroad and is in charge of a large group of men called a gang whose job it is to lay down new tracks for the railroad's expansion across Vermont. His gang has been slowly working their way towards the town of Cavendish, and it's a really tough assignment because they have to deal with these outcrops of hard rock. They can't twist and turn the tracks around every escarpment, so what they have to do is they have to blast the stone and make way for a straighter and more level path. And Gage is... Uh, Overseeing these tasks and equal them in every way. He's athletic, his movements are swift and precise, and in the eyes of his bosses, he's more than just another able body. He's the most efficient and capable man in their employ. And this is a tough job. It requires, you know, keen concentration. Things can go horribly wrong uh, on a work site, especially when you're dealing with explosives. So one day, uh, working on the rail near Cavendish, Phineas Gage is trying to drill a hole into the rock and detonate it. You're supposed to fill it halfway with explosive powder, uh, insert a fuse, and then cover the powder in sand, and then you tamp the sand down, and then you light the fuse. So... At 4.30 in the afternoon one day, while they're working on this uh, extremely physically exhausting and treacherous job, Gage puts powder and fuse into a hole in the hard rock and tells the guy who's helping him to cover it with sand. Someone calls Gage and he looks away for an instant. He's distracted and before his guy has poured the sand in, Gage begins tamping the powder directly with the iron bar. In no time, he strikes fire in the rock and the charge blows upward in his face. The explosion is so brutal that the entire gang freezes on their feet. It takes a few seconds to piece together what's going on. The bang is unusual and the rock is intact. Also unusual is the whistling sound, as if a rocket was hurled into the sky. But this is more than fireworks. It's assault and battery. The iron enters Gage's left cheek and pierces the base of the skull, traverses the front of his, of his brain, and exits at high speed through the top of his head. The rod has landed more than a hundred feet away, covered in blood and brains. Phineas Gage has been thrown to the ground. He's stunned. In the afternoon glow, silent but awake. So are we all. Helpless spectators. Horrible accident will be the predictable headline in the Boston Daily Courier and Daily Journal of September 20th, a week later. So, Phineas Gage survives, and miraculously, he's uh, nursed back to health. But, I mean, just, just think about this. Like, he has a three-foot iron rod blown through his head, and he survives. I mean... The chances are just 
so absurdly slim, especially in this time. But after the injury, Gage changes dramatically. And according to his employer, according to his friends, Gage was no longer Gage. So he um, he becomes unable to navigate this complicated social world in which he lives. He becomes miscalibrated. He, he loses his efficiency and his uh, upright moral posture. He begins to curse, you know, wildly. He does all these like intemperate, insane things. And, you know, in a few years, he's reduced from being the foreman at this railroad to working in a, a circus displaying the iron rod and his injury. And the thing about this is it, it really raises questions on what it means to be a person, right? And, and today we're, we're going to be talking about Descartes' Error, a book about the relationship between reason and emotion. And throughout this book, the number one thing that struck me is just how um, delicate our grasp is on our personhood. So for Gage, he he took damage to his ventromedial prefrontal cortex, uh, a front. It's basically like the front part of his higher brain, his his, his um, seat of, you might say, self control, uh, free will, and also a key point of interaction with the emotional system of his brain. And this is the crucial thing is Gage was able to reason in abstract domains perfectly fine. But when it came to reasoning in the complex real world social domain in which he lived, he became unable to do so because of the brain damage he sustained. And specifically, the brain damage he sustained affected his, like, ability to feel appropriate emotions when it came to contending with complex real-world problems. So, why are there different types of reasoning like this? Like, why, why, how can someone be able to reason perfectly fine, but have their life fall apart due to instances of poor reasoning? And how does emotion play a role in facilitating reason? Because historically, when you think about emotion and reason, you think about an excess of emotion impairing reason. But it turns out a lack of emotion can also be, you know, extremely detrimental to reason. So when you think about like the high reason of great moral philosophers, maybe like a Kant or uh, Descartes, someone like that, an emotionless, uh, purely objective reason. When that type of reasoning is, is deployed in the real world by real people who suffer brain damage that causes them to be unable to effectively express emotion, their lives completely fall apart. And not just people too, like monkeys with, you know, damage to their prefrontal cortices in areas that interface with the emotional systems of their brain um, don't seek out and receive help from their peers anymore. So this this crucial 
need for emotion to navigate complex environments is severely underestimated by most classical models of reasoning. Um, and, and I think it's, it explains a lot of different things in our lives, right? Like if you've ever been a, a substance abuser, you might identify with the situation where you're feeling negative emotions and you mask those emotions using a substance. By masking those emotions, you are obscuring a, a powerful tool that's going to help you reason your way through complex environments involving self and other involving your your social group that you reside within be it your social group at work or in your personal life and the consequences are you're you're losing a important compass that's intended to help you navigate the complexity of your life and since Phineas Gage we've had tons of other patients who've experienced brain damage in related areas and have um, have exhibited very similar symptoms. So you see patients like the stockbroker, who was a high-functioning stockbroker, happily married with kids and a uh, wife, beautiful family, and he suffers a stroke in a similar area to, to where Phineas Gage took his brain damage. And the stockbroker, on any test of intelligence, he's, he scores as perfectly intelligent. On tests of reasoning, he's able to reason perfectly. When you throw him social scenarios in the abstract, he's, a, he's able to tell you what the right thing would be to do. And yet his life falls apart from inappropriate displays of um, emotion, from a lack of emotion, from being unable to relate to other people, being unable to seek and receive help, just being completely socially miscalibrated and not making the right decisions. He ends up losing his wife, he ends up losing his job, and he can only do a very simple rote job after that from being a high-functioning stockbroker. And again, what a terrifying story that really like makes you question your personhood, you know? Like, who are you really if a small amount of brain damage can completely transform all of your behavior and the way you relate to other people in the world? You know, it just, um, it's, it's a very scary book in that sense. It's, it's fascinating, but it's also um, terrifying. And it really reminds us that we have very little control, ultimately. Um, we have a lot of control until we don't. I think is the real, one of the real lessons of this book. But if you look at this patient, let's call him Elliot. He, like Gage, is able to experience certain base emotions, but he's unable to respond appropriately to complex problems faced by him in his personal and professional life. So what's going on there? We will get to the answer, but let's look at a couple of other cases of brain damage and what they suggest. So when people suffer right hemispheric brain damage in their motor cortex, they sometimes get this condition called anosognosia, which co-occurs with left-sided paralysis. 
And in this condition, they're unable to recognize their injury. Like, they don't think they're paralyzed. At all. Um, and when you point it out to them and confront them with irrefutable evidence, like, you show them their arm and you're like, your arm is not moving. They acknowledge it, but quickly forget so, and also they don't respond emotionally appropriately to the, um, to the state of affairs that they're in. And as a result, they don't seek out appropriate help and they don't recover as well as people who have right-sided paralysis who are distraught with their condition um, and therefore strive very hard to recover and seek the help they need. So there's some sort of relationship between emotion, reasoning about complex situations, and bodily awareness. These three things are, are intertwined, is what's suggested by these various cases. So, another point to understand is we think in sensory images. So when we're, when we're thinking about things, we reconstruct either auditory or visual or olfactory images from our perceptual system to help us um, understand and navigate the world. So if I'm thinking about, you know, the dinner I had last night, first I have a picture come to mind, then I have a smell, then I see a face, uh, then I see the environment of the restaurant, I um, hear the kind of like background conversation, I remember some of the stuff we talked about. So this cascade of images occurs in an associative network as we try to reason about things. And this cascade of image, images occurs pre-reasoning. So you might say reasoning is the process of ordering and making sense of these images and drawing relationships, generalizing, using these images for predictive purposes and forming appropriate emotional associations to these images which then raises uh, an important point about the nature of emotion. So there are primary and there are secondary emotions. Primary emotions are pre-organized and they're somewhat innate. So for example, human beings have, some human beings have neurons dedicated to detecting snakes and responding negatively to them. So. Sim similar to that, we, there's a lot of fundamental innate drives and instincts we have that cause us to experience primary emotions, such as anger, disgust, happiness, sadness. Um, secondary emotions are associative and acquired. So let's say you get attacked by a dog as a child. You're not born afraid of dogs, but you are born afraid of bodily harm. So by associating the primary emotion of fear with the, um, you know, occurrence of bodily harm and the dog, you, you acquire the secondary emotion of like fear of dogs. And in order to do this, you have to be able to associate these images appropriately to primary emotions. Which raises a question about like the purpose of emotion. Like what is the evolutionarily adaptive purpose of emotion? 
Well, you might say it's something like cutting through the complexity of the problems you deal with by quickly and automatically closing off certain options from the, from the solution space and highlighting others. So let's say, you know, I'm hiking in, I don't know where, the Nepali coast. As I'm hiking, I might be confronted with uh, a, a log that's fallen in my path. Now I have an infinite number of things I could do there, right? I could try to like, you know, chew through the log with my teeth. I could try to jump off the cliff. Uh, I could try to um, climb over it, step over it. I could try to go backwards and go all the way back to where I started and find another route. Some of these options are immediately closed off because we automatically experience negative emotion when we when we're presented with the images of these scenarios um, in the imagistic cascade that occurs when we first encounter the problem. So jumping off the cliff, you get a negative emotion, bad gut feeling, and it's, it's closed off as an option. Uh, going all the way back, you might get somewhat of a bad feeling because it's like, oh, it's so much work. Stepping over, that might be highlighted as a, a good option because you picture yourself you know, continuing your beautiful hike. And there's a positive emotion that highlights that as a positive or favorable um, scenario to pursue. So instead of going through every single one of these cases rationalistically and being like, I should do this because of these reasons. I shouldn't jump off the cliff because, you know, I'm going to die and dying is bad because of these reasons. You just automatically know here, here are the small handful of options that are viable. If you're unable to summon up secondary emotions, you won't be able to effectively navigate a problem space with, you know, millions and millions of potential options to respond to. Like in a social circumstance, there's an infinite number of ways you can respond to, let's say, someone saying hello to you. But in reality, there's a small number of ways in which you really would respond, right? You'd be like, say hello back. Say, how's it going? Introduce yourself. Like, there are common responses that are, are much more likely to elicit a positive outcome than others. So it would seem that patient, patients like Gage and patients like Elliot have issues with their ability to recall the appropriate secondary emotion that helps them cut through the complexity of these situations and appropriately cut off certain options or highlight other options as appropriate. Which goes back to what we were talking about with um, drug use, where if you are in a lot of emotional pain for various reasons, uh, appropriate or inappropriate, and you mask that pain through substance use, you're compromising your ability to navigate the complex environment in which you find yourself. And that consequence is much deeper and much more significant in some ways um, than even the physical consequences of of drug use, right? Like people talk about when they're doing heroin, like 10 years goes by and they're just wondering where it all went. Uh, and they're static, they're stuck. Partially maybe they're stuck because they're obscuring the somatic markers, bodily markers of emotion 
that would help them to make sense of this extremely complicated problem and solution space that is their life. A second thing that kind of ties into this is meditation. So we, as we're thinking, our thoughts have secondary and primary emotions associated with them. So as one negative thought leads into another, we pull forth all these images that kind of make us feel bad. And then like we think about more thoughts that are related to those bad feelings. And we kind of spiral along in this way. By meditating, what you're doing is you're cutting the cognitive chain, the chain of thoughts that's taking you from one negative state to another. Um, and so basically like, you know, you're, you're not stewing in these emotions. You're feeling the, the current emotion. You're letting it settle. You're giving your thoughts a wide berth. And therefore, you're not constantly propagating this negative state. So it really speaks to the, uh, the value of, of meditation. And when, when you think about that, too, another big theme throughout this book is the connection between mind and body. A specific example might be the effect of chronic stress on your Langerhans cells. So chronic stress leads to an overproduction of a chemical called CGRP. CGRP excessively coats the surface of these Langerhans cells within the skin, which are immune-related cells whose job it is to capture infectious agents. And if they're completely coated, these cells become disabled, which makes the body more susceptible to, to infection. And there's tons of other examples of brain-body interaction too, where sadness and anxiety notably alter the regulation of sex hormones, um, bereavement leads to immune depression, and, and many, many others. So it's, it's not what this book is about, but it's, it, it, it factors in and it's, it's really interesting. It also ties into the value of meditation for managing your internal state so that you can then also reap bodily benefits. And it also speaks to the benefits of managing your body so you can get psychological benefits out of it. You know, like if you're ever depressed <clears throat> and you go, go get a workout and you instantly feel better. I mean, I don't know if you're clinically depressed or like, you know, severely depressed, but for me and my run of the mill weekly, you know, like slow morning or feeling a little shitty, um, getting a workout definitely completely changes the way I feel completely. So I would say my, my biggest takeaways from this book, which is a really well-written, extremely erudite, uh, technical, deep book with tons of fascinating asides, that emotion is not this, this thing that is only an obstacle to reasoning. That emotional is integral to reasoning. That emotional emotion is tied into our basic mechanisms neurologically for survival and biological regulation. That it's intended to be somewhat of a compass to help you navigate complex situations. And it's important to discuss this topic because in this day and age, emotion is somewhat under attack, right? In the sense that Behavioral economists will point to all the ways in which emotional reasoning leads to irrationality or le leads to flawed outcomes, right? So take a bias like loss aversion. The idea that 
human beings are irrationally predisposed towards avoiding loss versus seeking gains. Now, depending on the context, this is definitely an extremely damaging bias. <clears throat> so people stuck in jobs where they could um, earn a lot more or do a lot better in the startup space, you know, you need to swing for the fences, you need to try to win and not just not lose. That being said, loss aversion is also almost like the stated strategy of someone like Warren Buffett, right? Without loss aversion, you couldn't have all these incredible athletes who um, fight and die, um, not die, but fight super hard um, to not lose. It's not just to win, it's also to not lose. If you if you listen to interviews with them, the pain of losing is so severe for them that they would do anything to not experience that. So the point being is, our pre-organized and acquired emotional compass, it can be flawed, it can be irrational, it can be biased, but it can also be, it also is essential to help us navigate complex environments, be they social or professional, and we should try to respect and listen to our emotions um, in order to help us navigate our extremely complex and dynamic lives. And specifically, what does that mean? Well, again, I think meditation, actually sitting and feeling your emotions um, is a good thing. I also think it means not masking your emotions and not using substances as a crutch to mask your emotions. Um, and I do recommend reading this book for sure. It's it's a pretty dense book. It's um, it's 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 a steep introduction to neuroscience, but I would recommend it. I haven't touched uh, this deep level of neuroscience since I studied you know neuropsychology and neuroscience in college. Um, but it's a fascinating subject and it's a challenging subject, and I think I think it's definitely worth a read. So if you want to get in touch, you can contact us on Twitter at RDMR underscore IO. And yeah, <clears throat> next week, we're, we're going to be talking about the life you can save part three in our series on utilitarianism. It's about applying utilitarianism to philanthropy and the impact that can make. Basically, you can make a super positive impact for much less money than you think. And being, um, taking a hard-nosed analytical approach to philanthropy is a moral imperative instead of just kind of like doing things that make you feel good, but aren't maximizing the yield of, for example, lives saved or quality-adjusted life years saved per dollar. Um, so that book has definitely changed my life a lot. Um, and... I'm also going to be starting a series of shorter podcasts on a daily basis to kind of talk about various things I'm reading and various reflections on those things, as well as practice, doing it more often so I can get better and deliver better content for you guys. So that's what's going on there. And uh, other than that, I'll see you next week.